Budweiser presents Real Men of Genius. Real Men of Genius. Today we salute you, Mr. Really Bad Toupee Wearer. Mr. Really Bad Toupee Wearer. More than any neon sign or exploding scoreboard ever could, your chrome dome cover says, Hey guys, look at me. What could you be thinking? You think it looks natural, but it couldn't look phonier if it had a chin strap. Look at you! Made of space-age fibers, it can repel anything. Rain, wind, snow, and especially young women. So crack open a nice cold Budweiser, Mr. Stud in a rug. Then crack open another for that thing on your head. I don't think it's all straight. You got Gil Hodges is not here with his stars. No, 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 because he is completely pooped. I understand a group of you are going to uh, Vegas to appear at Caesar's Palace on this November 6th. You guys, all of you going out? Or how many will sing out there? Put up your hands. Eleven? Eleven, huh? Well, they'll be out there on November 6th. I'm talking now to our coast audience at Caesar's Palace. And uh, they're a year or since to bust every Vegas record. And Frank Scott tells me that Jack DeLauro, one of the Mets pitchers, uh, has other talents. I understand that, uh, Jack, you do a funny in- imitation of me, huh? <laughs> Pleasure, right, right here, right, right here on your. It's a big. Oh, it's, right, it's a really big pleasure. It's, Buddha Records and the Mets would like to thank you for having us on your show. We really appreciate it. We're thank delighted you very to much. have you here. Congratulations. You are a real bunch of champions, all of you.
Hoffman one more time set. And here comes the 2-2 pitch to Edgar Martinez down. The fastball swung on into deep center field. Bernie Williams goes back and it is... Straight out of God's country, Polly's Island, South Carolina, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network proudly presents Backwards K Pod. And now, here's the host of the show, Jake Robinson. Good moment, baseball universe. What is up? Once again, back is the incredible, the pod animal, Jake the Snake Robinson from the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. I'm coming out of Paulie's Island, South Kagalaki, half man, half podcast machine. Back in the Captain Kirk chair, shields down, photons up. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program that I call Backwards K-Pop, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, you cement freaks? Back in the palatial Robinson Gearing Studio Complex, from my week-long sabbatical to my hometown of Charm City, Baltimore, Maryland, the only state shaped like a handgun. And if I'm being honest, it was exactly what I needed so bad. I don't even think I realized how bad I needed in the first place. Hello, everybody. Greetings and salutations. What's juicy? Welcome into my baseball dojo this week. I'm Jake Robinson. I got your hookup. Holler if you hear me. And yeah, it does feel comforting to be back here doing the show this week. Tighter acoustics and a familiarity here. But Man, did, did I have a great baseball adventure last week. And I would be remiss if I didn't share some of those details. So, like, I fly to Charm City on Sunday, April 23rd. My cousin Joe is waiting for me, as usual, looking good as ever. I mean, this fucking guy, he never ages. I get in the web, first stop is the medicine man. And then I go straight to the hotel that he graciously paid for, which, thank you, cousin. You already know. So, the first day of my vacation, I really much spent, you know, the day and pretty much most of the night putting the Comiskey show together that I dropped last week. I did eat dinner at Medieval Times, which was a lot of fun. But after that, I pretty much went straight back to the room, worked on the show till about 4 in the morning. I recorded around 11 the next morning. And after some post-edit work, I, I put it out around 3. And then my cousin and my brother Josh, whom I haven't seen in about 12 years, we all went out to Camden Yards, watched the Orioles come back from four runs down to beat the Red Sox. And it was such a good time. So many stories. I, I won't bore you, but one story is the ultimate classic baseball story. And my brother and my cousin, they're, they are surely... Not going to let me forget this for, till, the, till the end of time. They'll probably talk about it at my funeral. And first of all, there are a lot of things I did not like about the Major League experience in 2023, as opposed to the last time I was inside a Major League park, which was roughly seven years ago at Marlins Stadium. Like, for real. There was a lot of goofy shit going on in Camden, but I'm not going to go there today. But the one thing they do right at Orioles Park, well, two things actually. They have a $10 bleacher seats Monday through Thursday, any game, any opponent. Now look, I hear people piss and moan about the price of pro sports, and I feel you. Far be it from me to tell you how to spend your hard-earned dollars, but $10 to me is a great price. So that's number one. Number two, they let you bring in your own food, which is... That's been from day one of that crib. And I've always exploited this rule. So I'm sitting in Centerfield Bleachers with my cousin and my brother. And it's between innings. And 
I'm pleading with my cousin and brother to go to more $10 games after I leave fucking Baltimore. You know me. Always spreading the gospel. The team is good. Exploit this deal when I'm gone. And support the dudes. Well, out of the corner of my left eye, I see uh, Red Sox outfitter Jared Durant finish his warm-up sauces with the Sheeta. And he turns toward the bleachers for, you know, that obligatory toss into the stands. And I jump up with my gravelly voice booming. And I'm like, yo, Durant, throw it here. Hit me in the hands, baby. I got you. Well, he winds up throwing it over my head. And he hits a piece of the uh, center field scoreboard. And bounces off. It hits a folded chair directly two rows in back of me. It takes this crazy carom off the chair and I'm reading the bounce I throw both hands up the ball literally hits the side of my left palm and it bounced into the rows in front of me where I believe some young girl got it I you know I was gonna jump down here and grab that ball but I I saw the little girl down there I was gonna give it away to a kid anyway because that's what I do but are you fucking kidding me? I just knew for sure I was going to get a ball on my first game back and then brag about it to you guys. <laughs> the rest of the night, I didn't hear the end of it. My, uh, you know, Japanese descent and shame, it filled my stomach the rest of the game, even though we won. If I had a sword, I would have chopped my own head off at that point. My third night in Baltimore, the second game, I moved my stuff from the hotel to my good friend Eric's apartment in downtown Baltimore for the rest of the trip. Uh, my dear friend Kathy, been my friend since the early 90s. Love that chick. One of the biggest supporters of my dreams and my life always. We hook up with Eric to go to game two versus the Sox. Again, same deal. $10 bleacher seats, boom, we're inside the yard. Well, there were some shenanigans about the size of Kathy's purse. And look, it's not cool. I'm not going to go there, but it was goddamn ridiculous. I, we actually had to take the purse back to her truck. And by the time I got inside the stadium, the socks are up for nothing. Well, fast forward, going to the, into the ninth. Boston is up 8-2. to two. And next thing you know, the Orioles had the bases loaded, and Cedric Mullins is coming to the play. And I tug on the sleeve of this mouthy Red Sox fan in front of me all game. And I look him right in the eye, and I tell him, Hey, bro, watch this. Said Mullins going to do it right here. Watch this. Keep your eyes on the field. And no sooner had I said the words, and Cedric Mullins went downtown for the Grand Salon. That brought the score to 8-6, to six, and I really believed they were going to do it. But that would be the final. I can hear the whistle from the clinch sphincter of that Red Sox fan after that dong, though. <laughs> That's what she said. So even in the loss, it's a great time had by all. And I even got to see Gunner go yard that night. So that was very cool. Now, game three was the most special of all three games. Probably one of my favorite MLB experiences ever. Day game, rubber match versus Boston. My daughter and her mom are with me. I haven't seen my daughter in like 12 years. We text all the time, but to be with her at a baseball game was medicine for my soul. The Orioles won, which was great. Taking two or three from Boston. That's always fun as an Orioles fan. But I barely remember anything about the game as my attention was, you know, 150% invested for the most part on my company. And Yoshida hit a home run to the right of me. And I'll be honest with you, I never saw it. It, it didn't matter. But the funny thing is, those things usually matter to me, especially a Japanese player like Yoshida. But... I got to tell you, when you're looking into the eyes of your mirror image, those things mean nothing. So, the Orioles took two or three on my adventure, which is the second best option you can hope for in a three-game affair. My heart is filled with love for Kathy, always. You already know. My boy Welsh, Rabbit, Biggie. That's my brother for life. We're just, you know, two chefs who have always enjoyed each other's companies. We argue, we debate, 
that dude has seen me at my lowest lows, but he's also seen my rebounds, and he knows what I'm fucking capable of. Been there through it all. And thanks for putting out with me for three days. And it's funny. We, you know, we have this. Well, he's Jay. And I'm this hetero, non-sexual life made solid Bob kind of relationship. Which may sound funny to some of you after listening to me here every week. But it's true. For the most part, I have the personality of a dead moth in a public setting. What you hear on pods are, are pieces of me and my personality just dialed up on PEDs. Especially if I don't know you. I'm a very awkward person. Socially, I've never fit in. And my boy Rabbit is like this social butterfly in public. He can engage anyone. He's always balanced me out when I'm around him. And he still does. So, thank you, good brother. Now, get your ass down here to the island and let me show you how we do it down here in Paulie's Island, South Kakalaki, kid. Josh, Joe, love you guys. Thank you. Uh, I met some great fans at Camden who said they would check out the show. So, welcome aboard. And, of course, my pumpkin and her mom. That, that was my favorite game ever. Ever. Out of, I don't know, close to 900 games I've seen a person. My, my daughter says to me before the game, that's when she usually goes to games, the Orioles always lose. And she thought maybe she was a jinx. And I reassured her that uh, jinxes... And curses are horseshit. That's what the team in the opposing dugout believed in. You were not a jinx, love. The Orioles were just atrocious, but they're not anymore. And you're going to get that win today, baby girl. So, thank you, Orioles, for not fucking that money up and making a liar of me. I really enjoy my team again. Some shenanigans going on to get in the stadium. You got to work on that. Tighten that up. Okay. Sorry I droned on there for for some of you, but... That's what Backwards K-Pod is, basically a biographical and historical count of the personalities and moments that are sewn into the fabric of this beautiful game. But, at the same time, I can hear the impatient New Yorkers like, get the fuck out of here with this days of my lives, touchy-feely bullshit, Jake. Let's talk Mets. I can literally hear you in my inner psyche. And look, Maybe you're right. Maybe I need to get it, uh, to, to move on, get after it. Ironically, as I sit here opining about the glorious week of Orioles baseball I just witnessed at the yard, I've also been gathering my thoughts all week, transitioning to a time when one of the most miraculous baseball moments ran through Baltimore at the expense of my beloved birds. I see the catcher's ready to come down. The infield is throwing that rock around. Let's clear this platform and load up our BKP time travel choo-choo. As I call all aboard. And I'm going to set our date and destination for the 1969 baseball season. The summer of love, baby. Queens, New York. As this week... We will be dissecting those amazing 1969 Mets. And we hear this term amazing a lot about that 1969 season. And for good measure, as it was literally the rise from mediocrity that would send shockwaves throughout the baseball universe that still reverberate in the heartbeat, uh, you know, the Mets people who witnessed it all these 54 years later. The laughing stocks of baseball for most of the 60s, the New York Mets captured lightning in a bottle, capturing the hearts of fans everywhere with an absolutely amazing World Series championship run. First of all, 1969 was a pivotal year in baseball. Baseball was an expanding bubble with the Montreal Expos and the San Diego Padres joining the National League and the Seattle Pilots and the Kansas City Royals breaking bread in the American League. And because of the expansion, baseball went to two divisions in each league. The Mets had been an expansion team in 1962, and since that inaugural season, they had finished no higher than ninth place in the National League. Now, early in the 1960s, the space race between the United States and the Soviet Union was on. 
And President Kennedy promised to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. The truth is, America at this time was sorely behind the Soviets in the race to space. And to many, this promise seemed like overreaching ambitions by the president. And many scoffed at the mere mention. Now, had President Kennedy said that the Mets would win a World Series by the end of that decade, it probably would have been absolute probable cause to impeach that dude because of, you know, diminished faculties. And that would have been one of the few predictions for the decade that would have been considered more preposterous than putting a human being on the fucking moon. Yet, amazingly, both of those missions would be accomplished during the Summer of Love. Starting with their awful 1962 expansion year, where the Mets lost a modern-day baseball record of 120 games. They would continue to lose an average of 108 games a year for the next five seasons. During the majority of the stretch, the team was led by the aging clown prince Casey Stengel, who, in his own dubious and unclear, mystifying way, that was all his own. He would try to explain to the writers and fans exactly what just happened on the field that day. The lowly Mets played almost every night before a packed house. And the fans, as well as the players themselves, they almost reveled in this loser image. As Stengel would probably say, to seek new ways of losing so as to entertain our newfound faithful. And I got a clip here of Casey and his, you know, his Stengelese dialect explaining his decision to manage his fourth New York team in his illustrious career. Okay, let me see if I can find it here real quick. Uh, here it is, right here. Baseball's an interesting game, goes for years. It's rather remarkable. I'm kept busy morning, noon, and night, in which uh, I'm supposed to start rebuilding a club here. And they figured a man with experience of been up and down would uh, be able to solve the situation in a... Two or three years instead of five years. The other reason why I went back into baseball, I laid out for one year. I wasn't out of baseball. I laid out, but I did witness a number of baseball games last summer, and I enjoyed myself. I made up my mind, why should I go back into baseball for one season? So I stayed out of here. Not because I went back into the business. It was because they gave me a very... Uh, interesting line of talk Mr. Weiss did and the first thing you know I said well why not go back and help build the thing because what good is a record anyway every record's broken whether it's in sport or it should be broken uh, as the world goes along and I would say uh, if you're around my age I don't know uh, about a record it's nice to get the record and have the record but you have to have people that help you get the record so many of my ball players got me my record or helped me to assisted me to get it and uh What's the difference if I am back in baseball if I keep busy? You can't take that goal with you unless you're... Because it's so heavy, the money that I've made, that if I go out and go on the water and I'd want to take that... It's a wreck and I'd want to take that goal with me. You can't take that goal with you. But people say you can because I know a man that did it. He had it around his belt. And what did he do? He went overboard and it was so heavy the goal sunk. So there's a the man who took the goal with it. So what good is it if you're... You know, if you're shipwrecked and you're under the water. <laughs> and I tell you, he, he is just one of the great characters in the history game. It's it's like, and I, I know guys like this, and sometimes uh, I just tell you about my boy Rabbit. And when, when him and I talk, we do this. They, they, you know, we start out explaining our first thought, and then there's something that branches into a whole other train of thought and speech. And so on and so on. So now he's like communicating through all these different branches of thought while still trying to keep the original thought of the conversation together. And I could listen to that dialect all day. I can't wait to collect Casey's story here at some point, uh, Backwards K Pod, but you know, it's just. I, I could listen to that guy for hours. It's amazing. I don't even know what the hell he just said. He went through like five topics there in about a minute and a half. What a great character of baseball. But I digress. In 1967, the Mets and their fans begin to sense this isn't the same 24 Stooges out at Shea uh, looking like the Keystone Cops with their usual comical pratfalls. 
Because around this time, the novelty of this lovable loser's label, it was beginning to wear thin with the fan base, which is, well, it's beginning to get smaller and smaller after each loss. Now, fortunately, around this time, the Mets had been blessed with a talented wave of prospects coming through their system, most prominently on the bump. At the core of the group of arms was Tom Seaver, a highly intelligent Cerebral creature with the explosive arm to match his wits. And the Mets literally had the hurler fall into their lap when an initial pack he signed with the Atlanta Braves was voided by the commissioner's office. So how's that for a butterfly effect moment, folks? Seaver was accompanied by southpaw pitcher Jerry Kuzman. And by 1969, those two are joined by rookie Gary Gentry to form a solid trio in the four-man rotation. The Mets also drafted and developed two right-handers in the bully who were talented and contributed mightily to the team, but would really make their mark in later years, uh, those two pitchers being Tug McGraw and Nolan Ryan. In 1967, the Mets finished the season with a 61-101 and record. 10th in the National League. But there was something different about this Mets team. The trained baseball eye or the Mets fan who watched them every day could see that these kids could actually play. And I do mean just kids. The catcher, Jerry Grote, who just died last week, rest in peace. He was 24. Ed Cranepole at first is 22. Shortstop Bud Harrelson is 23, Cleon Jones 24, Swoboda, Ron Swoboda 23, Seaver is 22. They are young, hungry, and shopping at the bit for the 1968 season, even after suffering those 101 losses. Now, to give these young talents discipline and guidance, the Mets traded pitcher Bill Dennehy and $100,000 to the Washington Senators for the managerial services of Gil Hodges. Uh, Gil Hodges was one of the Brooklyn Dodgers' original Boys of Summers from back in the day. And let me give you some context here. $100,000 in 1968. It has the purchasing power of eight hundred grand in the 2023 economy. So, there you go. By 21st century standards, the Mets gave up an arm and almost a million dollars today to make Hodges the ball club's manager. And, yeah, that's probably the greatest trade in Mets history as that deal paid off in spades. It really might be the best trade in Mets history. Especially when, after my research, I found out that Denny He went 1-10 in, in his major league career. I mean, am I crazy suggesting that, Mets fans? Let me know what you think about that statement. That 1968 season, the Mets improved to a 73-89 record, creeped their way into 10th place in the National League. I'm sorry, ninth place for their best finish yet. The tough but fair-minded Hodges, he changed the culture of the clubhouse, holding players accountable for their mistakes, thereby earning the respect of his competitors and thus setting up the ball club for future success. And folks, before I start digging into that 1969 season, I think I'm going to take a break here. I'm, I'm frying up in this fucking booth today. You know, I usually turn, turn the air conditioner and all the fans off so there's no... uh background noise I need a hydrate, towel off hit the cigarette, gather my thoughts pay some bills, don't go anywhere when I return I will bring this story home with the amazing 1969 season about to kick off BRB Seamheads I'll see you on the other side of the break Probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. 
The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands after. Well, the fish and hand cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap only to touch my eyes half hour later and my face begins to melt off due to damn Cajun no face spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy vet. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish for fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Ma, where my pole? I'm gone fishing. There's also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast. That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290 to prepare for your summer time shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning. Crawfishhandcleaner.com There's a fly ball hit out to left, waiting is Jones, the Mets of the World Champion. Gary Kuzman being mobbed. Look at this scene. He nearly tore this ballpark apart when the Mets clinched their division pennant against the Cardinals. Here's the Mets locker room. The Mets had five runs, seven hits, no errors. The Orioles, three runs, five hits, two errors. Sport Magazine has declared Don Clendenin as the outstanding player of the series. And he wins himself a new dodge. And it was a come-from-behind victory for the Mets today. They were trailing 3 nothing. The celebration of the new world champions of baseball, the New York Mets, the final score. New York, five runs, seven hits, and no errors. Baltimore, three runs, five hits, and two errors. And before I broke, I basically laid the groundwork going into that 1969 season about the Mets' mediocrity to this point. They were an expansion team in 1962. They lose 120 games that year, which is still a Major League modern-day record. They averaged 108 losses their first six years of the franchise's history. New York baseball legend is the manager, uh, Casey Stengel. And he's having a hard time explaining what the hell is happening to the club. In 1967, the Mets are beginning to see talented rookies make their way through the farm and have positive returns. In 1968, the Mets traded for manager Gil Hodges. 
and seemingly overnight, despite a 73 and 89 record, the team of youngsters are showing glimmers of what's to come in their impending future. And I think that's the gist. Sometimes my mouth just moves and I can't stop it. But in my brain, this is the story I was trying to convey to you before I broke for commercial. So now back to the program. Going into the 1969 season, all of the baseball pundits and talking heads, they expected nothing more from the Mets than their usual last place spot in the newly created six-team NL East division. Many of them even predicted the Mets would even finish under the expansion team Expos that season. And if the Metropolitans ever had ambitions to proving these predictions wrong, well, it didn't happen on opening day of 1969, as New York would fall to the Montreal Expos 11-10. to 10. In fact, the Mets limp into July below 500, mired in mediocrity, before railing off 11 straight dubs. And upon retrospect of the Mets' 1969 season, this is where it all began. The young Mets had quietly served notice. I'll be at the rest of the baseball universe. They, they barely acknowledged them as their, you know, the most MLB fans. They, at this time, they had their eyes focused on the Cubs and their powerful lineup of Billy Williams, Ron Santo, Ernie Banks. They're managed by Leo the Lip DeRocher. The Cubs had two 20-game winners in their starting rotation in Ferguson Jenkins and Bill Hands. And... You know, maybe it was like the national fascination of seeing the Cubs and, uh, you know, 38-year-old Ernie Banks play for his first postseason berth. But the Mets' 11-game win streak went off with barely an acknowledgement from the fans outside of Queens. And the Mets and Cubs, well, they engaged heads up with one another through, uh, through many heated contests during that summer love, with the Mets usually coming out on top. Uh, little did that play to New York's advantage as the Cubs maintained a nine-and-a-half game lead over the Mets going into September. And all of a sudden, yeah, you know, like like famine, like a, like a virus, the Mets swept through the rest of the regular season, destroying everything in its National League path and eventually consuming the Cubs in yet another monumental Chicago collapse. The Mets won 38 of the last 49 games. There are two crucial victories over the shell-shocked and befuddled Cubs in early September. It sparked a 10-game win streak. And, you know, really, it precipitated this eventual uh, Chicago Northsiders tap-out. And suddenly, the team that Casey Stengel once said invented ways of losing baseball games every day, Suddenly, that same team can't lose. They swept the Buccos in a doubleheader on September 12th when both of their starting pitchers, Kuzman and Don Cardwell, knocked in their game's only runs in a pair of one to nothing victories. Three days later, Cardinals pitcher Steve Carlson, he sets an all-time Major League record against uh, the Mets, striking out 19 batters, and the Mets still won 4-3. to they can do no wrong at this point. The Mets clinched the NLEs for the first pennant as its final home game that year against St. Louis uh, before going off on a week-long season-ending road trip. And the Chase Stadium groundskeeper, they spent that week-long road trip repairing the damaged turf at the stadium that was ripped apart by the 50,000 rabid fans who had literally witnessed something truly amazing. Offensively, the Mets' offense was a balance, almost what we would call metrics-driven today. Hodges, he used this, uh, you know, these platoon tactics where 11 players appeared in 100 or more games with only two, center fielder Tommy Agee and left fielder Cleon Jones playing in over 125 games. By contrast, Leo DeRocher, the lip, and his more traditional tactics, they saw him send the Cubs regulars out on the field day in and day out. And the results and the data suggest that the Northsiders were fatigued down the stretch, resulting in flatlining offensive production and a 16-25 and record in the last 41 games. New York entered the first ever NLCS versus the heavily favored 
NL West champion Atlanta Braves. So, you know, look, this right here, folks, it's the very beginning of the Braves and Mets. And I know, you know, it's really weird when some of you young guys probably think, you know, the Braves were out West. Yeah, it was, it's a, it was really fucking stupid. But they wanted to maintain some of these rivalries like the Braves and the Jets, which, you know, I hear people all the time now, though, oh, we can't break up these these rivalries. It's such horseshit. You can create new rivals. I think the Orioles and the Pirates should have the same, they should play in the same division, and they, you know, I'm telling you, Orioles and Pirates would be a great, great rivalry. Now, you can't be tied to things in the past. I love this year that, you know, the baseball has, you know, you know, thought outside the box, make the bags bigger, get away with this fucking shift, you know, all this stuff, the pitch clock, I love it all. I love it all, and I want to see more. I want to see, you know, a total reconstruction of, you know, American League National League. We don't need American League National League because everybody plays under the same rules now. The DH is universal. There's no reason for an American and National League. We need to set baseball up and some more geographical rivalries. But again, I digress. Despite beating the Braves in 8 of 12 games that year, as well as uh, having 7 more overall wins in Atlanta, the baseball world, they still imagined that Henry Aaron and Orlando Cepeda would be too much for uh, the Mets to contain. Now, also, the Braves were peaking themselves at this time. They're, they won 17 of the last 21 regular season games. To win a tightly contested NL West race over the Giants and the soon-to-be big red machine Cincinnati Reds. Ironically, it was the Mets bats that would pick up the shaky pitching as New York hit 327 in the NLCS as a team while smashing out six home runs in a three-game sweep of Atlanta. It was only now that, you know... Fans nationwide were really beginning to become invested in this amazing team and the story that was playing out in front of them. The Mets' stunning turnabout, it still paled comparatively with the sheer belligerent display of baseball supremacy the Baltimore Orioles displayed in the American League that year. The team they were destined to meet in the 1969 World Series. The Orioles had regained New steam, five years after sweeping the Dodgers in 66 World Chip, when they hired manager Earl Weaver to manage the team. The fiery O's manager who eschewed the bunt and hit-and-run baseball philosophies of the dead ball era in favor of three-run dong in conjunction with dominant pitching and stellar defense. With Weaver at the helm in 1969, the Orioles were a juggernaut titan. In his first season with the team, the O's cranked out 109 wins. They won the East by 19 games over the Detroit Tigers. First baseman, Boo Powell. He clobbered clobbered 37 home runs. He drove drove in 121. Uh, Frank Robinson, right fielder, was right behind him with 32 dogs, 100 ribs. And both of those studs, they batted over 300. On the mound... The Orioles were no less impressive with Southpaw Dave McNally in his 20-7 record and a 3.21 ERA leading the way. He was flanked by Jim Palmer, who after missing more than a year due to injuries went 16-4 with a 2.34 ERA, as well as the brilliant crazy horse Mike Cuellar, who they got in a trade with Atlanta. He went 23-11 with a 2.38 ERA. Baltimore had uh, easily dispatched her ALCS opponent twins in a sweep um, after surviving extra inning nail biters in game one, one and two before routing them in game three, 11 to two. And in truth, in truth, the Orioles look like the superior team in every facet on paper. And the Mets again entered the series as clear underdogs. When Orioles outfielder, leadoff hitter Dom Buford dropped Dong on Seaver's lips. Second pitch of the series. Many experts felt yeah, this was a, but a prelude to getting knocked out by Baltimore as the Birds took game one, four to one. And folks, I'm going to tell you, I'm good friends with Mr. Buford. Uh, we broke bread and shared drinks together many times. And I once asked my friend, when, when, when you hit that bomb to lead off the opener versus Seaver, and you're rounding the bases, First of all, do you have a boner? And, and, and second of all, what are you thinking? 
And Don, the stand-up dude, he's always been, he told me flat out, he was thinking this is over. It's only a matter of time. He told me, I, I thought for sure I was getting my second ring in three years. But a funny thing happened along the way to the victory podium for the Orioles. They actually had to keep winning versus the Brazilian New Yorkers, and the Mets did not receive the memo to accept their fate and roll over. In fact, after Game 1, the Orioles were thoroughly embarrassed and shut down by the Mets, and their sterling pitching and seemingly omnipresent fucking defense. I mean, it was ridiculous, the Mets defense in that 1969 World Series. It's unbelievable. It was a dual-pronged attack that left the Mighty Birds dumbfounded, frustrated for the rest of the series. Not to mention, with every improbable win, more and more eyes were fixed to the action playing out, and you can feel the momentum starting to roll. Jerry Kuzman, he stymied the Orioles game two, two to one. He retired the first 18 batters he faced. In game three, Mets starter Gary Gentry and fireballing uh, bullpen arm Nolan Ryan. They shut down the ice-cold Oriole bats with a four-hit, five-to-nothing shutout. The game also saw Tommy Agee. And I'm telling you that the biggest difference between the Orioles and the Mets in the 1969 World Series, well, first of all, the Mets were better pitching. They pitched better than the Orioles did. And second of all, was just this ridiculous outfield. So, you know, the Mets, 5 nothing shutout. But the game saw Tommy Agee rob the Orioles of at least five runs with two just spectacular, or should I say amazing, defensive plays in center. Game four. Tom Seaver throws a complete game, 10-inning, 2-1 to win. Oy vey. For a three-game-to-one advantage. A game highlighted highlighted by Mets outfield defense again. Right fielder Ron Swoboda. I mean, yeah, Ron Swoboda. Ron fucking Swoboda. And his sprinting, fully extended diving catch that kept the Orioles' potential winning run from scoring in the ninth, and it preserved the game for extra innings. Game five would provide the Orioles with even more frustration and some just, you know, bad, stupid luck. With Baltimore holding on to a 3 nothing lead in the top of the sixth, Orioles right fielder Frank Robinson appeared to be hit by a pitch, only to have home plate umpire Lou DeMuro roll it foul of the bat, despite Frank's protest. And Robinson would finish the at-bat by striking out. Now, later in the Mets half of the sixth, Cleon Jones appeared to have been hit in the foot, but again, DeMuro ruled otherwise. And in an almost confusing sequence of events that mirrored the 1957 World Series and Braves batter Nippy Jones, the Mets showed DeMuro that the baseball had a streak of shoe polish on the ball, proving that the ball did in fact scrape Cleon's cleats after all. <laughs> what, what, what? DeMiro overruled his own original call, awarded Cleon Jones for his base, and the next batter, Don Clendenin, promptly smacked a two-run shot. Ignited the Mets, who later scored one in the seventh and two in the eighth to take the 5-3 lead in the ninth. Now, side note, and this needs to be said. Jerry Kuzman later admitted that the Cleon Jones ball that rolled into the dugout without shoe polish... I repeat again, it was without shoe polish. Gil Hodges, according to Coos, told him to wipe it off his shoes and put it back out there into the umpire's hands. And that's what he did. No one has ever denied this. And this was something that I had never really heard of until the research for the show. I've seen the play on the highlights many, many times over and over, but I've never heard this story. Now, whether you want to call it gamesmanship as a Mets fan, or flat-out cheating as a nose follower. Some serious hanky-panky went on there with that fucking baseball. Through every possible game-changing moment in rallies, Jerry Kuzman kept the Orioles in check and secured one of the most miraculous and improbable World Series victories in the history of baseball. As delirious Mets fans rushed the field in delirium with their first world title, many of them too young to remember the days of the Dodgers and the Giants and the Yankees and the Big Apple, 
all the years of being laughed at and chided and dissipated into the chilly Queens air that October day. Now, New York needed to prepare for its second ticker tape parade in less than two months. The first one was for the Apollo 11 astronauts who accomplished President Kennedy's ambitions at the beginning of the 1960s. And the second was now going to be those amazing 1969 Mets, the world champions of baseball. And that, boys and girls, is the unforgettable story of the amazing 1969 New York Mets. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed putting it together uh, to retell it. And I will most certainly try to be better for you guys next week. And I kept thinking to myself while I'm telling you this story that 1969 was a tough year for Baltimore in relation to New York sports teams. Let's not forget, in 1969, the Baltimore Colts lose Super Bowl three to the New York Jets as well as the World Series to the Mets. And both of them were powerhouse Baltimore sports franchises. Both losses are two of the biggest upsets, not only in their sports, but in all sports. And on the flip side, it was a great year, uh, great year for New York sports as, you know, the city won championships and not only the uh, MLB and NFL, but the Bricks also beat the Lakers that year for an NBA championship. So, you know, a tale of two cities right there. Uh, but, you know, just, just a really cool story about a really cool baseball team. What a year. The Summer of Love, 1969. Before I make a, uh, like a nose and boogie. Let's take a look at some of those stats that made up this miraculous 1969 Amazing Mets team. Hey, let me see here. Let me look through here in my notes. Where is it at here? 1969 Mets. The 1969 Mets, they finished with a uh, 100 wins, 62 losses to win the NLE's pennant. 52 and 30 at home, 48 and 32 on the road, including the postseason. Uh, the 69 Mets finished with 107 wins and 63 losses. The GM was Johnny Murphy. The farm director was Joe McDonald. Scouting director Nelson Burbrink. Uh, Shea Stadium drew over 2.1 million fans that year. They had 10 walk-off wins that year, and they suffered four walk-off losses. During the regular season, the Amazons, they went 57-33 against their NLE's rivals. And they held the head-to-head advantage, win-loss advantage over all of the Montreal, St. Louis, Filthy, Northsiders, and Buckos. The Mets finished the 1969 season with a run differential of plus 91. Based on their run differential and Pythagorean uh, expectations, New York could expect to go 92-70. and 70. In one-run games, or games that went into extra innings, the Mets went 42-23. and 23. In regular season games, extra inning games, the Mets went 10-6. and six. The longest win streak in 1969 for the Mets was 11 games. The one that really, you know, catapulted them to the top there. The longest losing streak was five, and that only happened once in 1969. They scored 632 runs as a team and allowed 541. So almost scored 100 more runs than they allowed. That's amazing. Tommy A.G., he led the Mets with 26 home runs, drove in 76 ribs. Cleon Jones batted 340, he paced the team. Tom Seymour had 25 wins and a 2.21 ERA as the undisputed team ace. He's probably the best pitcher in baseball that year. He does with a sigh. Kuzman chipped in with 15 wins of his own. In the end, like I said, the biggest reason for the amazing Mets coup d'etat of a legitimate baseball power in the Baltimore Orioles was their dominant pitching and absolutely stupefying defense on display by the Mets outfielders. Jones, A.G., and Swoboda were amazing. Don Clendenin won the MVP for the World Series. But those three right there, probably the best offensive-defensive play as a unit in World Series history. And that is the 1969 Amazing Mets. And there you have it, folks.
I'm so happy to have the Amazons in our collection. And I just, it's an unbelievable story. Even to this day, I'm just amazed at how they, you know, just handle Baltimore. I mean, just fed them their ass. Uh, so, yeah, we got the Amazing Mets story officially in the book with a backwards K next to it. I'm going to chop the head over at Baseball Hydra, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week, I'll be bringing you the story of a true baseball icon, the greatest living player on the planet right now. I'm talking the one and only Willie freaking Mays. And man, I can't wait to go there. I mean, just an absolute rock star. A baseball legend. But hey, that's another story for another pod here at Backwards K-Pod where we collect ballplayers and their stories. BKP is available on all podcast platforms wherever you listen to your shows or you can visit my website diamondsnakejake.podbean.com to hear any and all of the shows I've done in my always expanding Baltimore cons. There's a lot of stuff out there about the amazing 1969 Mets. I saw some baseballs for sale signed by that team. Uh, by all means, jump head first in that rabbit hole and tell me what you find. And I told you guys that what I love about this show, Going Strong in its second year, is how all the stories are now branching off into previous pods that I've done. For example, I've talked extensively about this Mets team and the 1969 season in particular in previous pods here. I got the Nolan Ryan pod, the Depth of the Expos, the Earl of Baltimore bio. Even my Ernie Banks pod has tidbits about the 69 Mets in there. So, by all means, go to diamondsnakejake.poppy.com or any platform that you're on and check those out as well. I'll never charge you for the baseball content. No Patreon, no Twitch, no pay-to-play crowdsourcing. Never gonna fucking happen. With this insane economy, are you crazy? My number one goal in life is to spread the gospel of baseball around the world. And luckily, I have the greatest audience in the world. You guys help me to do what I love doing more than anything, and that's talk baseball to fine folks such as yourself. I am truly, truly living my dream. And for that, I say thank you, and I love you. If you want to help me to continue what I do, continue to do what I love, please leave me a rate and review. I ain't stirred. I do what I do when I do it, and I do it better than anyone on the planet. So look. Stars, superlatives, fat ass reviews, hook a good brother up on Apple, Spotify, or any of these platforms that offer you the opportunity to sound off. If you don't want to do it for me, do it for Flower. It's how I feed the fucking dog for crying out loud. But she's looking a little anorexic these days, so let's get those rates and reviews up. Please support the sponsors that support my grassroots entertainment. Drink Budweiser, lots of it. Who cares what's on the can? Just drink what's in it, stupid. Check out Lavarello's Fish and Crawfish Hand Cleaner uh, at crawfishhandcleaner.com. Support my neighbor's shipmate and his amazing cleansing formula to get rid of that fishy smell. You can find the shows on Twitter at backwards K on Twitter at back underscore K underscore podcast. My personal Twitter page is at jrobbie1, J-R-O-B-B-I-E, and the number one. You can email the show, backwardskpod at gmail.com. The show's Instagram page and YouTube channels are backwardskpod. But you can always find me chilling with the fans at the private Facebook group, the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network, the most comprehensive and interactive page in the book. Thank you once again for joining me in my sandbox to make sandcastles this week. And I'll see you guys next Tuesday for the great Willie Mays here at Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. Parents, if you see your kid sitting on the couch, got their nose in the phones like a board AF, by all means, take him or her outside. And play a game of catch. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. And as I step out with another show in the books, I can't help but think of something my good friend Shay Hillenbrand told me in our one-on-one interview this archives. 
You go to hell, Andy Pettit. See you next week, Seamheads. Peace. Peace.